All right. Let's talk about numbers. Everybody still doing okay? Reading through? Everything going well? We're done with numbers. All right. I enjoyed numbers more than I've ever enjoyed numbers. I don't know what that says about me or this time in my life or what, but I, I enjoyed reading numbers this year. And uh, maybe it was because I knew I was going to have to act like I was enjoying it on Wednesday night. I just, and so I just said I'm going to enjoy it. All right? Questions you've got. Numbers. We're in chapter 26 is about where we started, and we're going through the end of the book. We are not going to talk uh, tonight at all about Deuteronomy. We've just read a couple of chapters into that. We'll have plenty to talk about when we get back in a couple of weeks. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we'll almost be done with it by that time. But questions you have in numbers, things you want to know or noticed, things you noticed that you thought were interesting or touched you or challenged you, any of that. She mentioned that Moses gave exact details for everything. God didn't leave anything kind of their imagination. It was exact details on how he wanted the sacrifices done, how he wanted the festivals done, and all of that, right? Yeah, how much, how to make the bread, how to cook it, how to prepare it, how to wash it, how to cleanse it, all of that. Very exacting. Right. And, and what, what you see then is the Israelites really have no excuse for not doing it correctly. When, uh, you know, this is their tradition, this is what they had written down. And so you also see, you know, when we'll get over into the Old Testament a little bit, and you have somebody like Josiah that finds this and goes, whoa, we, we hadn't been doing this. You know, I mean, we have messed up, and we need to repent and come back to this when he realizes the detail it's in. And so uh, it's an interesting thing to see all that's in there. Rick? Yeah. Yeah, where, where is that, Rick? I, okay. It's in Numbers, right? You know that. Yeah, it's it's uh, 27. Numbers 27, verses 12 and following there. Um, God takes, this is a neat thing. God takes Moses up uh, to the mountain, and they get up there, and he sees all the land that he gives the Israelites. And after you've seen it, you're going to be taken to your people. Your brother Aaron was from the community rebelled and all that. Moses says, okay, may the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before him. One of the things that's amazing to me about Moses is Moses, you see him. Now, now he has his moments of frustration. And let's all be honest, leading this group of people, there would have been moments of frustration in our lives as well. But you see Moses constantly caring about the people more than himself. Moses, I'll destroy all these people and I'll give you a new land. No, God, don't destroy those people. You can't destroy the people. He gets to the end. Moses, go up on the mountain and when you get up there, you're going to see it all and then you're going to go visit your brother Aaron, which brother Aaron is dead. And so you have this thing where they say, okay, and Moses says, well, here's my concern, God. It's for these people. Can you make sure they're taken care of? And who does he choose? He chooses Joshua, right? who uh, was one of the 12 spies that came back and gave a positive report, him and Caleb. Um, sometimes you get it, you know, I think it's interesting that sometimes you hear it heard that that uh, Joshua is listed as one of the young leaders in the Bible. And, and part of that is because just simply compared to Moses, he was young. Moses was around 120 at this time. So that, that's that's not young necessarily to 
Now, if you, many 120-year-olds here want to dispute me, they can, but that's not necessarily young. And Moses is going to pass the torch to, jo- to Joshua. But we know Joshua was not real young, right? How do we know that? Yeah, he was with them in the wilderness. How long were they in the wilderness? Forty years. If he was a spy chosen by his people, he wasn't five years old when he went over there, right? And so you you have this understanding that he would have been uh, sixty, somewhere around there, probably. And so, not I'm not I'm not saying that's old. I'm just saying that he's not the youngest leader in Scripture. We'll have kings when we get into the into the stories of the kings. We'll have kings that take over literally as children. Uh, they take over in their uh, Eli's age time. You know, I mean, I read those stories a little differently now that I have a seven-year-old. Can you imagine a child taking over as king? Now, obviously, they had advisors, but it is an interesting thing, Rick, that, that Moses' main concern is his people, right? Anything in this Numbers passage that you maybe read that you hadn't seen before or you'd forgotten about or any of that? Joyce is always concerned about the women, and she was glad that the daughters got their share when their dad and all that had passed away, brothers and all of that, right? And it and it that was an important story because it's told a couple of times in there that you know, hey, don't forget us. And they had to set up new rules for that. Miss Betty, yeah, they weren't that. Yeah, that and when. When you read that, the natural assumption is that there's the story in there where they attack the Midianites, which that's that's the place you can see where Balaam wasn't isn't shown as a hero in Scripture because he's uh, led the people to stray. But you have in there that they get rid and they kill all of them except for the women and the young men and the guys. They come back and say, no, kill them all except for the young virgins is what they say. And they say, you can have those for your own. Well, it wasn't that they could have them for their own as wives or as concubines. It was in service slavery kind of thing. Now, we read it. Our natural assumption is what would happen then. um, And there's no explicit understanding here that it wouldn't. But the idea that every... Because I I saw that too, Ms. Bain. I thought, now that that doesn't jive. You know, I mean, the reason they got... These Midianites got in trouble in the first place is because their wives were coming in with the Hebrews, the Israelites, and remember that one of them walked through the camp with the Israelite, and they were punished. And so when you read it, it feels that every commentator I read said that it was for slavery, for service, not for um, wives or girlfriends or concubines or anything like that. But that's an interesting passage there for sure. The servants of the temple or, yeah, the Levites definitely wouldn't have used them in the other way if they're following what God's commanded them there. So Miss Anna asked about what about the ones assigned to the temple. They would have been servants. Yeah, I mean, uh, probably uh, preparing meals, probably uh, they didn't do a lot of cleaning back then because uh, there was dirt, right? Kind of hard to clean dirt. So they didn't have Swiffer wet mops either. Did a lot of that. Vacuum cleaners and stuff. Anything else? Other things you notice? Questions you have? We're going to talk in a minute about kind of wrapping it up, this, this whole book. But um, anything else? What about the cities of refuge? 
I mean, it's definitely, the east side of the Jordan is definitely in, uh, it's definitely Arabic. Yeah, it's, it's part of the land that's in dispute, you know. Yeah, but those were Jewish people. Those were, those were part of the 12 tribes originally. One of the things that you have to understand from the Old Testament perspective is land is not just land to them. I mean, in our, in our country, you go out and buy, sell, trade, give away pieces of land. The land was their inheritance. It was their possession. It was God's gift to them. And you do have, even in the headlines today, ramifications of Israelites who say they have taken our possession, our land, what God has given to us. I mean, tonight you can go home and watch fighting in the streets as Israel's trying to take more and the Palestinians are saying don't take anymore. Um, we, we did a thing the other, other night on Sunday night. Uh, several of you were in the study we did on Islam. And we talked about that. This, this generation of Muslim terrorists really began to get footing in the late 40s and early 50s when the United Nations said Israel now has land and is a nation. And they said, no, they don't. And so what you see here is a battle that's been literally raging for thousands of years. I mean, we think we have a long history in America. And we are 234 years old since the Declaration of Independence. That's not a long history when it comes to world history. You're talking about what's happening here. Some of those battles that we're going to read about in Joshua are still happening. Um, So it is part of that land. But what's interesting to me is they just, one of the things that, and Moses doesn't necessarily condemn them after they explain themselves with the land, But one of the things that interests me about those tribes and the half-tribe that just wanted to stay where they were is that that is so much the mentality of us sometimes. Let's just, we're settled, we've been here for 40 years, there's no reason for us to go across. And Moses says, now listen, um, you're you're sending men across. They're going to fight. And I think it's interesting even that they were willing to fight to stay where they were. Now, that may be reading a little too much into this text, but I've known people willing to fight to stay where they are. And that's what they're wanting to do. I think the cities of refuge is a really interesting concept. You know what I'm talking about when they give the Levitical cities? Part of the reason they did that is so that the Levites, the teachers of the law, would be out among the people, that they wouldn't be huddled in one place, that they would be out among everybody. But they said that if you accidentally killed somebody, now, in their day and time, they had what they called a kinsman redeemer. Um, Book of Ruth talks about kinsman redeemer kind of things. We'll see that. But this idea that if someone killed somebody in your family, you appointed somebody to hunt them down and kill them. What's that? Sounds good to you? Yeah. Somebody came after your family. They killed somebody in your family. Then you go hunt them down. And it's interesting that... that they had to set this up because that just in the law, it didn't say anything about murder or intent or any of that. And they said, listen, if it was an accident. I was thinking about last night my boys were in, they, they've gotten to where they like to take showers together. And they don't, they, the reason they like to take showers together is because they take their Lego men in there 
and they battle while the shower's going on, right? And they were doing that in the bathtub, and water was going everywhere, so we put them in the shower. Well, last night, apparently, the Lego men got in a shoving match that turned into the boys getting into a shoving match in the shower, and we're trying to get everything ready for bed and Madeline all ready, and all of a sudden, I hear the crash of the shower door, and the next thing I hear is the crash of a child, and the next thing I hear is Luke, I sorry, I sorry, I sorry, and Eli crying. Now, usually you would think it'd be the other way around, but in our house, Luke is the instigator of the two. And so I go in and find them, you know, just a scene of unintentional violence, all right? And so I, I was rereading that today thinking, you know, because people say you accidentally killed somebody. <laughs> My favorite was if you accidentally dropped a stone on somebody and it was and it killed them, I'm thinking, how do you... Oh, sorry about that, you know what I mean? But they made these cities of refuge up, and it shows the mercy of God. I mean, it shows that, hey, listen, it's an accidental thing so that you have refuge and they can't come after you, you can go. In some ways, it was like prison, though, right? You couldn't leave it. If you got outside the city, they could kill you without without any problem. And so you had that kind of going on. I also think one of the interesting things is they do the second count. Now, why would they need to do the second count? That's good. Somebody else. The census. The seconds. You know, they counted first, in the, but it's called numbers because there are two counts. At the beginning you had a count, and then at the end you have a count. Now, why do they need to do a second count? See how many survived? How many they got? They're getting ready to do what? what at the end of this book, what's getting ready to happen? They're getting ready to go into the promised land, right? So they got to figure out how many men they got. Okay? The second reason is Moses need to know what the tribes look like now because they're going to have to divvy up the land when they get over there. And he doesn't want to put a tribe that when they first counted had a 100,000 people, now has 200,000 people in a small space. You mean, you had to think about that. Well, when they count up, there is some diminishing thing. There's not as many people now as there were fighting men, but it is very small. It's a couple of thousand away. And one thing that's interesting about that is all but a very few of the original count had died. I mentioned this early on, but think about this. And what we've read in numbers, they would have had approximately 1.5 to 2 million funerals. Right? Because God said no one over the age of 20 is going to the promised land. Now, I will also tell you this. How old was Moses? 120. If you were 21... You weren't living to 120. I mean, one of the one of the physical actions of not going into the promised land was that they literally didn't get to the promised land. But another one was some of them got their lives shortened. And so you have these, all these people have died. I mean, literally a, a million, two million people have died. And yet God has raised up an entire new generation. You know, one of the interesting things I also thought about that doesn't get talked about much is there wasn't anybody that was over 60 when they went into the promised land. Right? Because if you had to be under 20, except for Joshua and Caleb, nobody else would have been able to go into the promised land if they were over 20. So you have an entire generation that's passed away, literally, and Moses needed to know what in the world have we got. Well, 
one commentator I read I thought was really good. He said, one of the things that it shows is the mercy of God. He took care of those people in the wilderness for 40 years. They had what they needed to eat. They had what they needed to drink. You read at the end of, was it at the end of Numbers or the beginning of Deuteronomy, there was that day you kind of did it where it gave the list of places they went and it just was one after another, after another, after another. And the temptation was just to go, you know, just kind of scan. But you read that and you think about that they spent time in each of those places. And in each of those places, God provided what they needed at that moment. And so you have this wonderful picture in Numbers of that being the case. One of the things I love about Numbers is this. It reminds us how very important each individual is because they counted each individual. And it also reminds us that no individual is too important because the most important person in this book is Moses, and in spite of pleading with God, Moses doesn't take him into the promised land. It's not because of Moses they're going to make it. It's because of God. And so what you see is this kind of interesting dynamic that they are, every person is vitally important and no one is too important. And it's one of those things that as a church sometimes we need to be reminded of. That when it comes to church life, every person in this church is vitally important, but nobody is too important. You just have to go with that. Anything else in numbers before I give kind of an end of the book summary? couple of things I think that we learned. Right. Yeah. In seminary, I had to read a book called The Land is Mine. And it did an amazing job. And I can't remember all that it said. I just remember thinking it was a good book. But it did an amazing job of showing just how vitally important the land was. That piece of property was to God and His people. Um, and that's why the political people that talk about Israel, and, and the truth is, most of the people that are in Israel today don't have that tie to the land. They're just fighting for themselves. But when the people reestablished Israel, those people had a real tie to this is our land. All right? Let me tell you some things. I, I saw a... Uh, uh, I was doing some research online, and I saw a sermon that was titled The Wilderness School. The Wilderness School. That what we should learn from their schooling in the wilderness. And one of the things that it said that I really liked was that, um, you know, there are all these metaphors about what life is. Life is a battle. Life is a fight. Life is a race. They said for the Israelites in the book of Numbers, life is really a journey. And as far as God's concerned, there are three places you can be in your journey. There is Egypt, where you are in sin and in bondage to it. There is Canaan, which is the promised land and the blessings of God. And then there's the wilderness, where you may have been broken free of the bondage, but you're still searching for God's best. And it said the truth is that we are all engaged in that journey. It's just a determination of whether or not we are in Canaan or pursuing that or whether we're still kind of wandering around. Uh, it talked about, or one of the things I think you see in here is that uh, you learn a lot about trusting God here. And the way you learn about trusting God is by seeing that they didn't. 
three things that the Israelites constantly did is they constantly looked back, right? How did they look back? They kept saying, why in the world did you take us out of Egypt, right? We had it so good in Egypt. We didn't have to worry about our food. It was so good in Egypt. Don't worry about the fact we had to make bricks out of nothing or that we were slaves. We, we didn't have anything. Don't worry about that. So they looked back. They looked around and complained, right? Now look where we are. And they looked within and realized what they didn't have. But they never really looked up. And in those midst of the life of circumstances, it's so easy to look around or look behind or look within and not look up to where we know um, God is. One pastor, I read a quote this week that says, when he reads the book of Numbers, he gets so frustrated with the Israelites, and he says, it's never the right time to give up. There's never a right time to give up. I was watching last night. Y'all may not know this, but Union is a basketball dynasty. Right? Women's basketball union in NAIA, which is the level below the NCAA, Division One, has won four out of the last six national championships. And on CBS Sports last night, some of you probably T-voted. You're going to watch it tonight. I'll ruin it for you. All right, I'll give you, break the surprise. They won again last night. And here's what I, but I, here's what I was watching. I was watching, and they're playing Azusa Pacific, okay? And uh, we know the coach of Union, uh, Susan and his wife, are uh, great friends. Uh, he's won an average of 34 games a year in his 12 years at Union. Um, just a, a great coach. And Union was up by eight with nine seconds left. Now, anybody watches basketball, up eight, nine seconds left, there's not much chance you're coming back. Okay? Well, Azusa Pacific fouled him to try to get the ball back. And I thought, why not just give up? And I got in here today, and I was looking through some things, and I found that quote. It says, it's never the right time to give up. Now, basketball is kind of a small thing compared to life, but there are times in my life when I feel like I'm down eight with nine seconds left, and I just want to give up. But what they need to learn is with God, there is never a right time to give up. Um, somebody said that you could learn a lot about ourselves from these people. How many of you got frustrated with them reading Exodus and Numbers? How many? Yeah. Yeah, I did. You get frustrated. Why in the world would you ever do that? And you realize that, that every one of them is just human. We all have a fallen nature. We all go in the way we're not supposed to sometimes. Uh, one of the things I think it speaks to is we don't like change. They didn't like change. They didn't like change of moving out of Egypt, even though Egypt wasn't a good place to be. They didn't like it when they got in the desert and they got manna, and then they got quail and they got all this stuff. They didn't like change. They wanted their routines set. And sometimes we fight that. Um, somebody wrote that, that one of the things you see is age doesn't guarantee maturity. We're not told this, but the assumption is that Joshua was one of the youngest spies that went across. And yet all these older guys probably that came back, and yet Joshua was one of the ones that said, no, we can go. So age doesn't always mean maturity. Uh, a few weeks ago at 4 o'clock we talked about that some people just grow old and they don't grow up. You don't mature in your faith. And one of the things in numbers is you see people needing to uh, mature. And then you just see that, that complaining and criticizing are not a part of what God 
intends. All right? We're moving into Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy will mix some storytelling and reading some of the law again. Anybody remember what Deuteronomy means? Second law. Okay? It's actually a Greek word. I know it's crazy that it's a Greek word in the Hebrew Old Testament. But Deuteronomos means second law. So Moses is going to... What it really is, and I want you to think about this as you read it, okay? Deuteronomy is one of Moses' sermons. So just imagine I got up and preached the entire book of Deuteronomy this Sunday, all right? Let's move over to Luke. Anything in Luke this week you notice, questions about, things you enjoyed? By the way, anybody's bed as big as the bed of uh, Og over there? That's a big bed, right? All right. Book of Luke. Anything in Luke? Yes, Miss Hodges. Yeah, I think that means nobody would do it. I mean, and, and I think it was I think it was his presence and his ability. He just wasn't time yet. But, yeah, you get this picture that they've got the angry mob out there, and they all look at each other like, all right, now who's going to who's gonna do it? And Jesus just said, ain't nobody going to do it. And he just walks through there. Luke writes it there just because I think he wants us to see that, that nobody could do anything to Jesus that he didn't allow them to do. And at this time, it wasn't the time. I hope you're noticing, I mentioned this, I think, last week. Luke writes in more detail than some of the other, uh, the Matthew and Mark that we've read so far. Uh, he doesn't write as much detail about the end, the last week of Jesus' life as John will. John gives us the most detail of the final seven days. But Luke writes in details. It's like you, it is like you're reading a reporter. Like he's giving you all the things that happened. There's uh, that, that um, I was thinking about the story where he goes up and, and there, it tells you how many boats there are, and he tells them to get the boat out a little bit, and they, they pull the fish in, and he, it gives this description. You can almost place yourself there as he's doing it. Other things you noticed in the book of Luke. Cliff asked about the order that they're written. Most people say Matthew, Mark, and Luke were, were first uh, or were written around the same time. Um, I don't have exact dates on that. Um, I can get those and have them next week, Cliff. Others, yeah, yeah. One one of the big debates is that there is there's no there's no um, evidence of this outside of something like what Luke says. But there are thoughts that being passed around around this time were a, a book they call Q. And Q were just sayings of Jesus that had been written down. And so they think maybe Luke had access to Q. Um, he says in there, others have taken into account to try to write down some stuff. I, I want to give an orderly account. I want to do this for you. Um, there is no doubt that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were working off of similar material. Now, that could be as much as they were talking to the apostles. The apostles are going to have similar material. But they definitely think probably Luke used... Mark um, and some of Matthew, or Matthew used Mark and Luke. They don't think that, that Luke was first, um, but that he definitely used some of that kind of source material. I mentioned last week, they think there are a lot of scholars that believe he went and interviewed people that were close to it. He went and interviewed Mary. That's why you get that detail of what happened around the birth of Christ, that he may have... Uh, um, that he may have uh, interviewed... Uh, the, some of the apostles while they were in Jerusalem and his journeys with Paul, or uh, Paul would share some things that the apostles had taught him in that years after Paul 
came to Christ that he may have uh, been able to talk with some people that were kind of involved there. And so Luke definitely gives this picture of being like a reporter, gathering all the facts and then writing it down in an orderly fashion. I read an interesting thing this week, and I guess I could save this for a few months, but I would forget it by then. Um, the newest theory, you know, the, one, the only book in the New Testament that there's not real good evidence that we have a clue who wrote it is Hebrews. I mean, as early as about the second century, Origen said only God knows who wrote Hebrews. They just don't know. It's not a big deal. I mean, we it's a book. We think it's verified that it's it's important, but we just don't know who wrote it. Nobody identifies themselves. The, the theory I read this week that is the latest theory is that it is Paul's words in Luke's writing, that Luke wrote it down. And part of the reason they say is because it bears so much similarity in style to uh, Luke and Acts. Luke and Acts are some of the finest writing in the New Testament, Greek-wise. I mean, you know, you, you can read, the way you write often talks about your education. Uh, there, you can go pick up a real highbrow novel, and you may not be able to understand it, but you know it's written well. Uh, or you can go pick up a novel, you can read every word of it, and you know how it's written, and it's not good English. Uh, Luke is very good English. I mean, very good English. It's very good Greek. All right? And Hebrews is elevated. Um, as opposed to Peter's stuff that is written like a fisherman. I mean, when you're, when you're taking Greek, nobody wants to translate Peter because you can't make sense of it. Other questions? Does that kind of answer, Cliff? Okay. Other things you noticed in Luke? The New Living makes an interesting choice at his baptism, um, and so does the New International Version. It's a little detail that Luke puts in that they translate this way. It's in chapter 3, verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Um, most older versions kind of just have like a dove or in the form that kind of look like a dove, but that makes it sound like something fell on him. It's just an interesting thing. I don't have a clue what happened there. Um, but I don't think I don't really know that anybody around had a clue what happened. They just knew something happened. It's not like the guys at the Transfiguration. This something happened. We can't explain it. So Denise. Yeah. The genealogy. There are people that have um I just know that when you go back to it, Judah is always kind of the, the one that it's taken back to. Um, Perez and then Hezron. Um, you know, it, one of the interesting things about Luke is, and this is just the orderly nature of him. Um, <laughs> Luke's going to take it back to the beginning, right? And so I don't think there's anything wrong in that. And Gad is, 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 it appears that way because of Perez and, and the things that are there. Um, but I think it's just interesting that he goes all the way back. I, I love the phrase that he was the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Just like that's just who he is. Other thoughts, questions? Um, the tricky part there is there are two different dates for the crossing of the Red Sea. 1,500, 1,600 years. Yeah. There, even though there's 15 to 1,600 years difference, the Jews were still following what Moses did very closely or trying to. Um, 1400s are about where that dating is uh, 
There's 1,200 that date at 1,400, somewhere in that fray when they crossed the Red Sea. Um, so some of that is just debate uh, about what generations mean, what all that has to do with everything. So 1,500 years is a good estimate. I've actually emailed my professor from Union who used to give the best concise outline of biblical dates because I thought last week reading this, it'd be good for us, for you all to have something you could stick in this and go, okay, when the northern, when the kingdom, David's reign is in 922 or whatever. Uh, it's a thousand. It's actually around a thousand, somewhere around there. But 922, the northern kingdom is uh, split and there's problems there. 722, the northern kingdom is gone. 586, the southern kingdom is gone. We saw before Christ. Those in the prophets, then when we get to the prophets, we can hang them on those areas that this is where we are. So I hope he sends it back to me. If not, I've got to recreate the thing. So if he doesn't send it back to me, I'll email him 14 times till he does. But every class, period, and I've looked in my notes, we would start the semester with that timeline, and you knew on the first test you had to do that timeline verbatim. And I don't remember a bit of it now, Tom. That happens, doesn't it? So. All right, anything else in Luke? Yes, sir. 21 and a half. I don't think they thought of generations as a certain number of years. We have to, one of the things we have to remember about them, they kept a calendar, obviously by the Jewish calendar, but their Jewish calendar isn't exactly like our calendar. And so they kept a, a, a different kind of calendar than we do. And so even our years don't necessarily match up with with what they would see as years and generations. Um, and so I am I think, you know, I think longer rather than shorter. I think 20 to 40 years, somewhere in that window, was a generation. One of the reasons I think that is because um, it's because of what we see in Numbers, where God says nobody from this generation shall see the promised land, and then they are 40 years. Um, so... I think 20, 20 is around what I would go with. Now, you know, in our day and time, they're shrinking generations. They have Generation X, which is my generation, was about 15 years. Generation Y was about 11 years, according to whoever makes these rules. And the noughts, the alts, which is the current one, is be done in another couple of years. We've got 10 years. So soon generations will be... Uh, six-month periods, I guess. I don't know. All right? Pro- favorite proverb or psalm this week? Things that you liked in there? Some of you have asked. Yes, we are reading the psalms twice this year. Some of you hadn't even noticed that. And now you're like, man, I do not have to do that. My second time through, you are? That's okay. Rick, read it to us. Psalm 62, 5, and 6. You can't. You don't have your glasses, do you? It's beautiful. I'm, when we get to it, I'm not going to give it to you now. But somebody remind me when we start reading through the Psalms again. I'm going to give you an assignment as we read through them again. Okay, something to do each ta- each day as you read. Psalms or Proverbs, little things you liked in there. Deborah and I were talking about this in the office today. Proverb for yesterday, the 23rd. I've encouraged you all to be here Sunday morning, and in light of what we're talking about Sunday morning, 
Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. People curse those who hoard their grain, but bless the ones who sell in time of need. We may have a new theme starting Sunday. Proverbs 11. It's a biblical principle. You don't store up. All right. We're done. Two weeks. You kind of slow down on questions tonight. you got to have questions. makes it better. So make sure you come in two weeks with lots of questions. We're in Deuteronomy. I, my, here's my gut, gut feeling. Once we get through Deuteronomy, the questions are going to pick up again. Once we get into Joshua and Judges especially, when you start reading about Judges that you haven't read about before or you don't remember the judge that was so large when they stabbed him, the full sword went into his belly and the fat closed back up over it. I know. <laughs> In Judges, right? Yeah, Ehud did it, right. But to a king, Ehud the judge did it. But, I mean, you have those things in Judges like that that you're going to go, wow, that's in there. you got story. I mean, you know, in Joshua, you got the taking the promised land. In Judges, you've got things like Samson, Gideon, some of those great stories and some of those lesser-known stories. Ruth will all weep and cry during the week we read Ruth and enjoy that. And uh, Esther, so... We got all those coming up too, all right?